the optimal life. I see that you've got such a well-versed history here in the Hollywood scene. I mean, you've been involved in so many different movies and productions and uh, some some big-time names that people would recognize. I, I know you've done some work on the uh, Oprah Winfrey films. Uh, it looks like Tuesdays with Maury, Amy and Isabel, The Wedding with Halle Berry, Before Women Had Wings, uh, Terminator 2, Jackass the Movie. The list goes on and on. Talk to us. How do you even get involved going back to the beginning stages? How do you get involved in this industry? Uh, well, for me, it was just saying yes to everything that came along and getting interested in just being as relevant as I could and doing informational interviews with people who were in senior jobs that I wanted to do, that I was interested in a path and talking to them and figuring out, is that really a path I want to follow or do I want to go down this other path? And when I say doing, saying yes to everything, that basically meant any job that came along, I didn't say no to it. I was evaluating whether or not it it sent me down a path that I was interested in or not. I never did anything immoral or illegal. That would, that's the distinction I say to young people is if, you, if you're asked to do something immoral or illegal, don't do it, just move on. But uh, it started for me in a tape op, as a tape op in a recording studio. And like you said, I just kind of, I worked a few years in marketing, which in advertising, which is how I worked on Terminator 2 and Total Recall and some big features. And then transitioned away from that into physical production, ran Oprah Winfrey's film unit for five years. That's where the TV movies came. And then I freelanced, which as a line producer, which is how I got to work on Jackass and a few other movies. And now I'm a CFO. Mm. And that's really because I just, I wanted to have a family. I wanted to have a kid. I got married. I didn't want to be on the road. And I wanted a little more settled sort of life. And I'm, I'm an anomaly. I'm in my mid fifties. Most people who work in film production, they transition out in their early forties. That's actually pretty late. So anyway, that's how I got to where I am. And it's been great. It's been an amazing career. met some amazing people, worked on some really fun projects. So you started in your twenties, early to mid twenties. Actually, I started when I was 18. I was my second semester in college. I was a music student uh, and I was, you had to take a recording class. And I thought, oh yeah, I'll take that class. I'll learn how uh, stereos work. And it turned out that it was really about how you record music. And that got me a job as a tape op working for a, a man called Dan Van Patten, who was the founding drummer of a band called Berlin. Mm. So, and I worked on some great stuff and I worked on some terrible stuff. I worked on Poison's first record, believe it or not. Wow. And um, they, they were nobody at the time. They just moved to Los Angeles from Philadelphia. And uh, I was, you know, I was kind of super lucky. And I got that job because I just threw myself into that part of music creation. It's not the actual playing, it's figuring out how technically to get a player's uh, performance, their sound, all of it on tape in a way that's interesting and, and compelling for people to buy it. That wasn't their album with Every Rose Has Its Thorn, was it? No, that was like three or four on. That was Look What the Cat Dragged In. It was their first record. Mm, okay. And they were, and I was, I was a kid. I remember, I mean, I was second semester freshman year. I was 18. I think I started working at the studio as an intern uh, in March. My birthday was in May. I was just about to be 19. And I, so I started really young, which is kind of uncommon and worked all the way through college. So, uh, and I got a degree. So, and I got a degree in advertising, which is how I wound up working in marketing at uh, Columbia and TriStar Pictures. So you mentioned as you you first started off as a tape operator, 
in the recording studio. Then you kind of went into the production side, digital productions. What exactly does that mean and what were you doing? So uh, I was a PA, I was a gopher. So I worked, I graduated from college. I had a degree in advertising just for no reason other than I wanted out and I wanted a degree. And that's why I got an advertising degree. It's not like I set out to do that. And I thought, oh, well, I'm going to go see what this, how this works, but I want to work on a movie or a record um, account. So I went to go work for an ad agency and I kept, I, I did well. I kept getting promoted. I learned a lot. And then I just realized that's not what I wanted to do. I really wanted to get back to the physical making of product. So I was offered a job uh, working for a competitive agency on the Universal Pictures business. And I just was like, you know, if I do this, it's going to be golden handcuffs. I'm not going to be happy in 20 years. I think I, I want to go work in production. So I got a job as a PA on a show called Dream On. And in that job, I got to see grip, electric, camera, set deck, writing, directing, all of it. I saw all the crafts on a soundstage in North Hollywood for nearly a year. And I went to go do that job with two days worth of, worth of guaranteed work. And I stayed for uh, either nearly a, a year or just over it. And in that job, I realized that what I was good at and what I was interested in was the, the, the physical logistics part of physical production. In other words, putting materials and people into a place that allowed the creatives to actually shoot whatever their vision was, writer, director, actors, right? Those people need to be... Um, they need to be supported with an infrastructure when you make a movie. So I worked on, I created budgets, I paid a lot of bills, I did cost reports back to the studio. That's where I learned the physical part of making movies and the details of all the gear, how camera works, how set deck works, how the grips work, how electric work. I mean, I learned a lot and, and it was like, it was a giant ocean with a million droplets to learn about. And that's what just got me so interested in it. What is the most challenging aspect of making a movie? I know it's a loaded question, but if you had to put your finger on something that really is the most challenging thing, what is it? It is the conflict between art and commerce. You have a finite amount of money and you have an infinite amount of ideas that the creatives want to execute. And you have to figure out how to take those two things, which are inextricably bound and come to the middle to figure out how to make the creatives deliver their vision for the money the financier has given you. That mm. is the conflict. And that's where the fight comes. I mean, I was the no guy. I was my job for, which is really, I hated that part of it, but my job was to say as the line producer or a production manager, my job was to say to the creatives, I'm sorry, you can't do that. The studio didn't give us, give us enough money. If you want to do that, you got to go back to your executive and get more. I tried, they said no. Um, what That's would be an of example it. of that, Tim? Like uh, somebody wanted to do something more crazy with the set, with the... Yeah. So uh, to give an example on Dream On, they wanted to go... The writers were tired of shooting in the same four sets on a small soundstage in North Hollywood. They wanted to go out and shoot out in the wild. And that has a, a huge expense related to it because you got to put everything on a truck. You got to get all the people and the infrastructure to shoot on a physical location and not on a soundstage. So... The Universal came back and said, no, but we'll give you this little pile of money. It's like 40, 50 grand. I'm making numbers up. I don't remember what it was. It was many years ago. It's the early 90s. And uh, the production manager, I mean, the produce, producers and the production manager said, okay, we can build. Uh, and by the way, uh, the show took place in New York City. So that made it even more expensive to shoot it just to try to make LA work for New York. So what they compromised was they built a block of New York City on the side of one of, of the construction building, which was next door. 
And they shot that for a couple of times. So, you know, the creatives got bored. They wanted something a little more interesting. They wanted to live outside. And the money, the studio just didn't allow it because HBO was paying a certain amount, a finite amount of money. And the studio was deficit financing half of it and needed to find some alternate market later on down the road, which they didn't know. And it actually didn't exist quite yet. So, you know, there's a lot of, and these are, probably $40 million decisions you're making or $20 million decisions you're making about the financing in the future. You're financing today to make money in the future. So they're, they're big decisions and someone's got to pull the trigger on that. And they don't always say yes when the creatives are, uh, are asking for things. And that, that's the conflict. Yeah, that makes, that makes so much sense. It seems like it's so complex uh, all the different moving parts. I mean, HBO for it, you're using that example. They're the ones that are responsible to make sure that everyone, like who's running that? Is it a CFO person at HBO that's overseeing the entire movie project? Is it a group of people? They've got to make sure the actors are paid, all the, the you know, the interns, the, the advisors, the directors, the producers, the consultants, people building the, these sets. I mean, how does that all work? Well, that's a really great question. And it's super important to understand how the business is organized. And yeah. that's one of the things I go through in my book, which is how does the industry work? In order for you to get the informational interview or talk to the person who can actually give you a job, you have to you have to try to break through the chaff of hundreds of emails that are coming through. Hey man, will you read my script? Will you watch my movie on short on YouTube? You have to figure out how to get through that. And the way you do that is you understand how the industry is organized. So to answer your question, HBO is an exhibitor. They they play the movie and they're going to pay for about half the cost of the negative. In other words, delivering an episode or a show. And then the studio, the financier is say, in that case, it was Universal. So Universal sold the project to HBO. HBO and Universal both have a production department. They have a development department and they have a whole uh, corporate structure above that. So the people who are on the ground managing it for the producer, which is Universal, and the exhibitor, which is HBO, there's there's development people who just deal with script. They deal with you know high 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 end names, writers, directors, actors, and then once you get into the grind of actually making it, there's a producer that has a deal or has been brought in by Universal to actually physically make it. In that case, it was Kevin Bright. He was a producer in television. He went on to make friends and and you know sell make them. He he did very well. Let's put it that way. At any rate, Kevin was a producer who had a deal, had worked with, and I think he had a deal with uh, Universal, but had made some shows for HBO. And so Kevin's job was he was given a pile of money by Universal, along with John Landis, who was the creative end of those two parties. And they came together and created a company whose single purpose was to make Dream On. Are you gonna market yourself as a personality to HBO? No, when I say personality, someone who wants to work in the industry. You're not, unless you wanna work in development. And the people who work in production have probably five or 10 years of experience, you're never gonna get those jobs. And if you do, you're gonna be a secretary. Uh, if you wanna work from the ground up, you not don't necessarily go to Universal, you go to Kevin Bright Productions and the physical, the people who are physically making that show on the ground. And that's the kind of understanding you have to have, to have about a show that you want to work on. And that starts with doing a lot of research to find out who the names are. Yeah, it's got to be extremely complicated. There's so many people that want to break into this industry and they absolutely have no idea how to do it. And I assume most of the time, they're, if they are trying to do it, they're not doing it in the optimal way. 
and uh, 10, 15, 20 years in Los Angeles, and then they're burnt out and they come home, they go back to where they came from. Well, 10, 15, or 20 years is is like, that's a, that that's like, that's a disease. I think it, people burn out after five. It's tough. I mean, to hear no all the time for five years or to work on lousy projects that don't pay and then work as a bartender or a waiter or an Uber driver or whatever to try to make ends meet, Man, that doing that for five years—that is a tough grind. I, I don't envy anybody who's in that position. Yeah, I mean, it's it's extremely competitive. It's very tough uh, to to get in. And then, of course, so okay, so you've got this. You, you've had different roles. You've been on many different aspects of the industry. And then we've talked about the financial thing, and I want to piggyback that into what you're doing. So um, you've recognized that being a CFO, being the money man in the, in this industry, um, really was a, it may be a niche, uh, something that was really needed, especially for independent producers. Talk a little bit about how you migrated from the production side, I believe over to the money side. Well, my job in production was after I, I stopped working as a PA, I transit, I transitioned into production finance. So that is the business of making payroll, paying people their meal penalties, their overtime, their straight time, uh, making uh, an accounting for petty cash that's doled out, which in the movies is a lot of money. You might spend 30 or $40,000 a week on a $5 million picture for 10 weeks of petty cash, right? So it's managing all of those transactions. It's, it's making sure that you have a clean set of books that the IRS is gonna be happy with, the studio can show to everybody and uh, paying the bills. And then my boss reports that back out. So I, at an at a early stage, I went down a finance track, which led me to becoming a, a CFO, which is a, not that big of a leap, believe it or not, because you know a movie company, a show, a, a TV show or a feature is, is, is like a small business that you create that happens at speed and at scale. So you start a business called a movie company that is each individual TV show or feature has its own company that it works under and you essentially scale up. You'll add 120 to as many as 800 people depending on the size of the project, the budget. You got to pay the payroll. You got to deliver books. You got to shut it down. And that's going to that's gonna happen over the course of anywhere from five, six months up to maybe a year or two at the most. So you're doing what an entrepreneur would do on a regular basis over the course of five or 10 years, assuming they sell their business and then maybe even longer if they stay in it forever. But you're essentially doing that, scaling up, starting, and then winding it down, actually manufacturing and then winding it down in a short amount of time. So you know, you're doing it at scale. And that's something, that's a skill you learn in entertainment that you don't really, that has, that you won't find anywhere else. And that's the part that was interesting. And that's how, that's what led me into the CFO chair was because I had experience on doing the work and I just needed to transition out of physical production because it's, it's a demanding life, man. It is hard work. They are 18 to 24 hour days, or I should say 20 hour days. You got to sleep for some amount of time for you know weeks and months on end and it's tough there's not something you do when you have a kid family and right. do you can't do both and you can't do either one of them very well so, but elaborate on that you said that you could only learn this scale thing uh, working in in the entertainment industry talk a little bit more about what you were what you mean by that and why do you only feel that you could learn it the way you did it there's the only other industry that probably is similar is construction where you are your task is to take a pile of money and turn it into something. You're building a building or you're creating, moving and delivering it. 
Um, those skills are, are essentially the same as creating a new movie. So there is a producer, a line producer, and maybe a UPM, two or three people whose job it is to say to the studio, I'm, this project's gonna cost this much money. The studio comes back and says, no, I'll give you this much. And I guarantee you this much is less than what you asked for every time. So you're gonna have to figure out how to scale that business up and add people and equipment and all the rest of it to be able to create an infrastructure where on a, on a $2 million picture, we hire as many, as, as few as 150 people. 120 maybe. That's not even including extras. That's just the core crew and the actors. So you have to build an infrastructure to support a company that is essentially 120 to 150 people over the course of about eight or 10 weeks. And doing that at that kind of scale for eight or 10 weeks and then winding it down so it's just editorial, which is maybe four or five people on the high side, two normally, and a production person in post-production who's going to actually manage the physical delivery of all the elements, that, that experience doesn't exist anywhere else in business except maybe in construction. And that's the skill you learn. And you're spending millions of dollars. There are companies that go on for 10 years and make three or $400,000 top-line revenue of, of, and a profit of maybe 40 or 50,000 a year to the, to the owners. That's a, that is, that's something that happens over two or three or four years. We do it in a matter of months. Yeah. So you're saying that because of the finite amount of time that you're given and the resources that you have at your disposal, it, that's what makes it unique. It's not like running a business where you have sustainability. You know that the business is going to be there for hopefully an infinite amount of time. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. But but the muscle is still the same. The work is the same. The systems are the same. You still have to build systems for how do you onboard a new employee? Because just because yes. you're working in movies and not working at, you know, whatever restaurant or business or tech company, you still have to onboard all those people. You have to give them all the sexual harassment documents, the insurance documents. What's your W-4? Where do you live? What's your social? All that stuff has to get created. You have to build systems around it. How are you going to get a check paid? How do you get petty cash in people's hands who need it? How do you hand out those checks when people get paid? How do you pay vendors? You got to pay your grip, electric, your locations, your truck, your rentals, your camera, all of it. All of that has to happen in, in a span of about two weeks. Whereas with most companies, it might happen over a span of two or six months. How much, uh, generally speaking, what does it cost? Uh, obviously, it could. I know that the numbers vary tremendously but for just a small independent fil film i mean what's a range how much would it cost a, a young filmmaker uh that's looking to produce an independent film w what are the costs that go into that that that's such a deep and loaded question you we could do hours on it but l i'll, I'll kind of give you a summary of my experience which is in the in the extreme i met a kid a kid is is a is a um, not really. He's in his mid to late twenties and experienced to some extent as a as a degree in un, an undergrad degree in film. He made a horror film that takes place in a bathtub in his garage for six hundred dollars and sold it internationally. That yeah. is the extreme. Isn't that the dream? Okay. Uh, yeah, it doesn't happen very often. <laughs> the creative is, you know, the creative is uh, is is very specific, right? And it normally happens in the horror genre, but independent films are being made you know, anywhere from $500,000 up to a million and a half to 2 million, and sometimes a little bit bigger. 
Um, and I mean, truly independent. I don't mean independent films made outside of the system with Matt Damon in the lead, which never happens because Matt Damon doesn't do that. But let's just say he it's him, right? Um, like Goodwill Hunting was an example of that in the early part of his career. Those right. movies are really financed by a, a bigger financing entity, or they're not financed by a bigger financing entity. Maybe it's private equity. It could be lots of different ways it finds money. And then everything else, uh, you know, anytime you get any kind of financier involved, whether it's a studio, it's a foreign distributor, those movies typically are made for anywhere from a million and a half and really probably more like two and a half to five or eight million. And then above that, it just, it, there's a chasm between $10 million and a hundred million or 80 million. There's not a lot of movies made in that middle range. They're either big tent poles made for a hundred or more, many hundred million dollars, or they're made for under eight or $10 million range. Oh, interesting. What was like the, the Titanic has to be one of the most expensive movies made of all time. What, what would that cost? It was reported to be $500 million, Jeez. but you know, who knows? And that was a long time ago. And that was a, you know, they made a, they, they built a quarter size replica of the Titanic on a pool in uh, Rosarito Beach, Mexico, which is in, in the Baja Peninsula. And uh, they built an actual pool. It's like, like a 600 a million gallon pool that was a horizon pool that looked out on the Pacific Ocean. So they could control the water. But when you were shooting on it at night, you saw out into the ocean with the moon out and the, you know, whatever. And that was a huge endeavor. Building a, 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 a quarter model of the boat that was on a gimbal that raised up 45 degrees. So you could do those, uh, those sinking sequences with people and stunts and all the rest of it. That's, it may not have gone up exactly 45 degrees. It may have been less and you pitch a camera to make it look like it's 45 or 90 degrees going into the ocean. But you know, they spent a lot of money. That that doesn't really happen so much anymore. It's it's usually done with CGI now. Right. But that movie still made a ton of profit, correct? Yeah, it made... I, it's been reported that the AD who had... The assistant director, who is the person on the set physically wrangling the pieces coming and going from a set, from extras to cast to how the crew works and so on. They're the manager of the traffic cop of all the stuff that goes on a set every day. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a... There was a rumor that the residuals from uh, DVD sales alone, and the residual is an obligation the producer has to pay certain creative elements, and the ADs are one of them. Uh, the rumor was that Fox had written a check to the ADs in excess of a million dollars from the the percentage of uh, of sales that were made for DVD. So if you do the math backward and they're collecting 2%, they get a million bucks. You're talking about hundreds and hundreds of million billions of dollars worth of dvd sale and that's just the dvd sale well wow. just dvd not wow. including what happened at the box office which i want to say was worldwide over a billion dollars yeah so let me ask you back to the smaller films because that's really i assume that's probably where you're spending more of your time these days um correct the independent genre that a million dollars to maybe five million ten million on the high end like you said there's not much in between after 10 million it really jumps to the tens and tens and tens of millions so um so on the smaller stuff let's say a, a independent producer director filmmaker comes in they produce a film for two million dollar budget what's the what's the hope for them what how do they ultimately want to make their money how much money can they make and uh and again i know these are all loaded questions yeah but what you know what's what's the intent how much money can they potentially make and who are they selling to 
So the easiest one to answer is who are they selling to, which is they're going to, in, in the sort of traditional festival circuit, right? They're going to premiere at Cannes Film Festival or Toronto or Sundance or one of the big festivals around the world where they don't actually have, they haven't actually already made a sale to a distributor. So they raised a bunch of private equity and let's say two or $5 million, somewhere in that range. They run the circuit and it wins a few awards or it finds a buyer. Harvey Weinstein comes into Sundance and buys the movie for $10 million, right? That market doesn't really exist so much anymore. Um, it used to, uh, but it's become such a tight market. It's so consolidated. And you know the studios and the streamers really, they wanna make their own stuff. They don't necessarily wanna acquire movies. So it's, it's a hard grind, right? Um, that's kind of the traditional model of, how the, of what the expectation of how you're gonna sell and who you're gonna sell to. Some distributor, either a Sony, a Warner Brothers, Sony Classics, Canal Plus overseas, um, those kinds of players. Maybe you'll sell to a streamer. There was a time when Netflix was buying everything because they were trying to scale their library and Hulu to some extent was, um, but that's essentially who you're selling to. What's the expectation? Um, I think the expectation from the producers and what they sell is you know, 10 or 20 times returns. That's, that's typically what venture capital, including equ private equity and movies, is looking for because they want to. The theory is you want to amortize your losses, which are are greater than your big wins, and you want the twenty or thirty times uh, winners to cover the cost of those that either broke even or lost a little bit. Wow! And so you're my, suggesting that if somebody had a five million dollar cost, uh, the, that was the total cost to produce their film, they'd be looking for at least fifty million dollars on the sale. In the end, in aggregate sales to to people buying stuff, yes. But at the end of the day, that 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 number that you see reported, you see a hundred million dollars reported at the box office. Well, that grinds down to the filmmakers to be a loss in ninety nine percent of the case, in ninety nine percent of cases, I should say. Um, you know, it, and I can, we can go through the economics of how that works, but you know, you hear often about how a hundred million dollar feature, a hundred million dollar sale turns into the producer and the director and the writer making nothing because everybody made money but them, right? Right. Um, that that's yeah. The answer is they're looking for some kind of return that's that that kind of scale from you know ten to fifty or whatever. Wow. Um, is that likely? I don't think it is. And I've seen in many examples where movies are made for a couple million dollars and never find a sale. They sit in the can and they, they go nowhere. No one right. wants it because it doesn't have anybody in it. You know? Well, let me ask you about that. So, cause yeah, to me, if, if you spend $2 million on a movie, wouldn't you be happy getting, getting like four or 5 million for it, especially if you're very inexperienced and independent? I think you'd be happy making $200,000 if you make That's, a 10% okay. return. So, so there is fine. A, so there's a wide range here. Some people, it depends on who's involved. Obviously, an equity group, of course, is going to want a major return. Um, well, equity groups equity, don't touch our business. They hate it. Yeah, I was going to say they probably only want the big the big productions anyways. $2 million probably doesn't excite them a whole lot. Yeah, and not only that, but you know, they came in, a bunch, uh, Ryan Kavanaugh raised $700 million for, I forget the name of his, his, his uh, company is going to elude me at the moment, but he raised a bunch of money and was funding movies. And there was another company that was Intermedia that was here doing a similar thing. They were making movies outside of the system, financing them and selling them into the system and renting those, those systems, those distribution systems. Those companies went away because they didn't make money. They lost money. 
there were two uh, groups that uh, I, they were called Melrose One and I think Melrose Two that had raised buckets of money. Same thing, hundreds of millions. And those guys, I don't know if they lost their shorts, but they did not make big returns if they even made any money at all. Right. So, so it, yeah. it be just being a financier of movies doesn't work. And people have come and gone over my career many, many times. You have to be a producer, a distributor, and actually in reverse order. You have to distribute movies. If you're not a distributor and you don't have access to a market or have access to consumers, you will never make your money back. It is impossible from the time you're given a dollar to the time it grinds down to the people who financed it and you don't have distribution access to or distribution set up, you'll never make your money back. It's, it's physically impossible. Let me ask you, speaking of that independent, uh, you used the Harvey Weinstein going to the Cannes Film Festival, buying a, a movie he liked for $10 million. Uh, in that scenario, or when there's just a buyer in general, how are these buyers making the decision? On, how do you value an independent film? And if I could elaborate, does the, does the independent producer show you how much it costs them to produce the film, or does that not matter? And if it doesn't matter, I'm just curious, how does a production company, a producer, a distributor value an independent film? It is 100% based on hype. There's no formula to it. It's not based on how much you spent. It's based on, oh, Harvey wants it. Well, I want it more and I got more money. And then Harvey goes, well, wait a minute, I want to pay even more. And then all of a sudden you're, you find people spending 10 or 12 or $20 million for a movie that was made for 2 million with you know some name actor. You know? And it's really about, when I say it's all about hype, it's a, yeah, it's a, there's a lot of hype in it, but the acquisition people who sit in those movies and watch it, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is a perfect example. This is a movie that would have never worked in the US. No one would have ever bought it on a script with entirely Chinese cast. I think actually in Chinese with the US subtitles, that movie never would have been bought. But because it was such an amazing movie and some acquisition executive, supposedly Harvey watched it and was the guy who found it. I don't know if that's true or not, but nonetheless, some acquisition executive sits down and watches that movie. And these are people who have a really strong sense of good story, good filmmaking, and what's the pulse of the market that they can sell into. And then to some extent they get marketing involved and marketing knows what works and what doesn't. They, they can tell you what will work and what doesn't work on a finished movie. There's nobody in marketing or distribution that says, yeah, that script is a good idea, you should make it. It's gonna make buckets of money. It might be a good idea, but it, who knows if it's gonna make money or not. But yeah. going back to your question, the decision about what to buy and how much to spend, how much to spend is a function of how many people want it. If no, If only one buyer wants it, you're gonna be arguing over some number that's relatively close to what you spent. If two or three producers want it or distributors want it, then you're into an argument over, okay, how much is that guy gonna pay? How much is that guy gonna pay? How much is she gonna pay? All right, then they all sit around and swing their dick at each other and the guy with, or the girl with the most money winds up getting it. Right. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. It's, it is more intangible. There's no there's no formula like EBITDA and net income and profit Doesn't and loss. Exist. and and all that kind of no inventory. I mean, this is you're buying intellectual property, but that's it. That's the asset you're you're purchasing. Exactly. And you have a, I've always said that the people who work in marketing and in distribution in the movie business are the smartest people in the room. They have a product that somebody spent millions or tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars making and marketing, and they have a three day shelf life. 
It comes out on Friday and by Sunday, they know how much money they're going to make for the rest of time on that title, or at least over the next seven, 10 and 20 years on Sunday night, they're going to know what that is. Actually by Friday at about four o'clock, they're going to know how much money they're going to make pretty accurately. Those people can tell you whether or not it makes money or not. How do they know that so quickly? Because we 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 distribute ten movies, five movies, four movies every single week, fifty two weeks a year. There's a pattern. Human behavior is like Mother Goose dropping crumbs to go find Hansel and Gretel. Stati- statistics we, never lie, do they? They never lie. Human <laughs> behavior is so predictable; it's, it's not even funny. It's unbelievable. Well, even I look at that with my podcast and the downloads. I can tell you very quickly uh, that exact thing how how an episode is going to do based yeah. upon the first three days performance. And we do this five times a weekend, 52 weeks a year. Yeah. Well, so let me, uh, before we finish it off, uh, again, let's use the, the independent area, uh, a company or a person or a group of people that's got $2 million, $4 million, $5 million budget, they're producing a film. Where does Tim come in to the, to the mix with all of this? Uh, I My job at this point, my job is to take whatever distribution agreements have been uh, secured from the producers or uh, between the studio, the network, a distributor, whatever financiers are out there and go close that gap. So every and close a financing gap. So distribution paper says you're going to get this much money on this date. That date is typically on delivery or some other trigger happening at some point in the production of a picture. It could be at prep, it could be beginning a principle, the end of principle, delivery of a director's cut, and then delivery of movies. So, but we're spending all of that money in the beginning. We're spending it within the first four to eight weeks of a picture's uh, production cycle. We're we're probably spending close to seventy-five or eighty percent of a cost of a budget before we receive anywhere from 20 or 30% of the total income that's going to be generated by that title. So my job is to go close that gap and figure out where we're going to find the cash to actually make the movie and how we're, how the financing of that works. These mo- movies are extreme, and TV too, are extremely complicated financing models. You have the multiple distributors who are paying on different timelines and on different trigger events, and you have some kind of incentive. Every single movie or TV show that you see on the on the screen today found some amount of incentive somewhere in the world. Like, for example, in Canada, there's huge amounts of money that are that are that are returned back in the form of a tax credit for the labor spent. In Atlanta, we see the same thing. Germany used to have one. England had one. North Carolina has. North uh, New Mexico has. So when I say every single, it's probably hyperbole. Maybe there's like 95 or 5% somewhere that don't chase a tax credit. But every single movie is, is, is financed with the intention of finding some kind of tax incentive somewhere in the world to make their financing come together. And we have to go figure that out. So South Carolina pays out in about 60 or 90 days from the time you finish. Uh, Canada pays out in as long as 18 months or three years. You know, sometimes you got to close that gap. And we're talking about big numbers. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars on a $2 million or $4 million spend. So I come in in the beginning, I cash flow it, I figure out where the money's coming from. And we've, we then get all that put together and then we start funding the movie. And I assume you've got a plethora of contacts in the industry, which is because again, your book titled how to make it in Hollywood suggests that, correct? Yeah, I, I do have a lot of contacts. I've done this a long time. And there's a common thread, and that's what my book talks about is, what's the common thread that people that come to work here? 
and the people that stay in the industry and work over a long period of time. And that thread is they're relevant, they stay engaged, they're persistent, and they network, and probably in reverse order. You gotta network. The day you stop networking in Hollywood is the day your career begins to atrophy. And mm. that is the job, knowing how to network and who to network with and focus and target on people who are making the same kind of material that you're making. Yeah, and we will link uh, the book up in the show notes. Anyone that wants to t- take a look at uh, Tim's book, it's How to Make It in Hollywood. Click the link here in the notes. Uh, Tim, where else can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on timtortora.com. My last name is T-O-R-T-O-R-A. You find me there. You can get to my social links. You know, I don't do a lot of social. It just sort of happens naturally, but I write a lot about the industry, how it really works. Uh, you know, you hear people say, hey, I found out this guy who wants me to invest in a movie and it's gonna, it's got this weird financing mechanism. I'm like, yeah, no, that's not how it works. That's <laughs> well, probably fraud. I, I, yeah, I was going to say, I'm sure you help a lot of people avoid being ripped off and theft, et cetera. Yeah, that's how this actually started was I wanted to teach people how the industry actually functions so that when you hear some crazy idea out there that's like, oh, yeah, we're going to do something that no one's ever done. That's fraud. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, man, fascinating stuff. Continued success to you. TimTortora.com. Check them out. In the We've linked them here in the show notes. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Nate. I really appreciate the time. Thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of the Optimal Life Podcast. If you haven't yet, please subscribe and follow the podcast wherever you're listening. And you could also leave a review. Apple Podcasts, of course. You could leave reviews and ratings. Spotify, you could leave reviews and ratings. And several and many other podcast apps. Wherever you may be listening, please tell a friend, tell a family member. Let them know about the podcast. And we will see you next time.